0: Heat training, and, pardon the pun, a hot topic in the world of sports performance. And frankly, it's been covered to death all over the internet. So today, we're going to do things a bit differently. Yes, we're going to talk about heat and performance with a guest in the trenches of this space. And yes, we're going to get to some surprising recommendations for performing in the heat. But as this guest just completed their PhD, we're also going to take a look behind the scenes This is made interesting by the fact that our guest has the sports science trifecta, being an environmental physiologist, a cycling coach, and an athlete. He has a unique take on cycling performance science. We get a look at the process and thinking behind his research and how it's designed to make a real impact on the world of sports performance. Yo-ho, and welcome to Ride Better, Faster, a show about cycling, training, and racing. I'm Damien Roos. This episode is about riding in the heat, but it's also about the long and windy process behind scientific research. It was 2015 when we last caught up with Jason Boynton, PhD, just before he was about to move halfway across the world from Wisconsin to Perth and start his PhD. He was on the show talking about how to apply science to your cycling. The funny thing about the title of that show, Jason lives it and has dedicated the last 10 years of his life to the science of cycling performance, including recently handing in his PhD thesis. Jason said back then that he wanted to complete a PhD.
1: Because I want to learn more about all of this type of stuff and uh, continue growing in this.
0: So not only is he the perfect person to take us behind his research and the scientific process, we can also see if this process has changed his ideas on scientific results. Jason completed his master's in Michigan, but having the desire to continue studying, he found limited options in the US. It was a chance meeting with fellow American Dave Martin, a heavyweight in Australian and international sports science, that planted the seed about doing a PhD in Australia. And soon after this meeting, Jason comes across the work of Italian-come-Australian Paolo Manespa, a sports scientist, coach, and active researcher who is currently head of Performance Solutions at Cycling Australia. He started going through his research papers where he spots another name that would end up changing his trajectory forever.
1: And I saw that there was a guy named Chris Abyss that was on all of his papers.
0: I want to touch on Chris Abyss. It's a difficult task to summarize his work and achievements, so sorry Chris if this is too brief. But he's an associate professor with over 15 years of experience working in sports science and has collaborated with the likes of the Australian Institute of Sport, Cycling Australia, and Green Edge Cycling. This is an impressive record, but they aren't the only reasons why Jason was interested in working with Chris.
1: I definitely came over for Chris because I had become really interested around environmental physiology and thermal regulation and how it affected performance. Uh, So that was something that was really interesting to me and Chris was like an expert in both those things. He was very into cycling performance uh, research he was also very into environmental physiology research and so he seemed like a really good fit. There was a chamber, environmental chamber at ECU that could be used for research.
0: Jason wanted to send Chris and Paolo, Chris's PhD candidate at the time, an email with his CV. He had no trouble finding Chris's email,
1: but I couldn't find an email anywhere for Paolo. But I did find him on Facebook, and I remember, like, in order to get my message to Paolo on Facebook, Facebook charged me a dollar seventy-eight. So I paid a dollar seventy-eight to get the get this uh, message to Paolo.
0: That was a dollar seventy-eight. Well spent because Paolo got that message and Jason got to send his CV to him, which turns out to be an important detail because Chris missed the email from Jason. And it was only after Paolo brought it to Chris's attention that Jason was able to get on the phone with Chris. And after one chat, the wheels were set in motion and Jason would soon be accepted and planning his move to Edith Cohn University in Perth, Australia to start his PhD. At this point... We've got an idea that Jason likes studying cycling performance, but how does the environmental physiology part fit into it? Well, like anything, there's a bit of a backstory here that we can trace back to the summer of 2011. Jason's out on a ride on a stinking hot and humid day when he comes across a friend, now a former National Cyclocross Masters champion, dressed head to toe in cold weather gear. They stop for a moment, have a chat, and Jason asks him the obvious question – What's with all the winter gear in the middle of summer? His reply was another question. Haven't you seen the recent article in Cyclocross magazine about how heat acclimation can improve cycling performance? No, Jason was dumbfounded. Thinking he'd missed something really important, he chased down the paper the magazine was referring to, and after reading it, he wasn't satisfied with it.
1: You know, this paper came out by Lorenzo et al., out of Chris Minson's lab. It was one of Chris Minson's PhD students. And it just seemed really interesting to me. But I was like, this research, the practical side wasn't there. I thought it needed some work.
0: What Jason questioned about the Lorenzo et al. study was whether heat acclimation conducted by an athlete in a real-world context would have the same increase in performance as the methods utilized in their lab experiment. This question perplexed him so much that it actually influenced the path he chose for his PhD research. To recap the story so far, Jason's landed the PhD position, has his area of interest, the right people around him at an appropriate place. The next step is figuring out the details of the research, and it started with a list of questions that pro teams are curious about from pro cycling outfit Edge.
1: Uh, When I sat down with Chris, Chris had a list of kind of research questions that GreenEdge had actually talked with him about. These are all the research questions that we have. Um, And if you have a PhD student that's interested in these, you know, then, I mean, they wouldn't give us funding, but it would be more about like, here, these are practical research questions that actual pro teams are curious about. One of those questions had to do with temperature. And that was this idea of, um, it was very specific to Australian athletes and this idea when an Australian athlete moves into the, like that time or starting Australian cyclists, when Australian cyclists comes over for the spring classics, you know, they've been, uh, riding in this hot summer the whole time. And when they get over to, um, Europe, it's very cold And so there was this kind of anecdote that was going around in the team of like it's that felt the guys felt like it's very difficult for them to kind of make the switch and so um initially my phd was about exploring that um the question of like why is this going on and the funny thing about that was, you know, the first, my PhD was broken down in the three, um, three studies. And the first study was going to be just a massive data collection of the, of the athletes before and after they traveled of, you know, jet lag and temperature sensors and actometers and all of this kind of stuff It's just a massive data collection. And looking back at it, like that first study probably could have been a PhD in itself.
0: So this first study was a non-starter. And by the way, Jason later mentions one of the ways that the team gets around the issue of the change in temp and time and light differences is by staggering their trips to Europe by first going from Australia to South Africa to stay in the same season but changing to the same time zone as Europe and then onward to Europe. Smart stuff. But back to Jason. At this early point of his PhD, he knew what he was going to study. Heat, performance, and intervals. And as Jason mentioned, this was originally broken down to three studies. But after ditching the first one, it was down to two. And these are an acute study and a training intervention. It's a little confusing, so just to be clear.
1: The first study was the one I have published now, and that was basically looking at intervals and all these different temperatures. And then the second study was a training intervention. And you know I have a, two papers on it right now, and I've just submitted one.
0: Lots to dig into. Let's start with the first study aimed to examine the effect of environmental temperature on performance during high-intensity intervals. In other words, this study is an experiment to determine the optimal temperature for high-intensity intervals. When designing the study, Jason was, in his words, heavily influenced by a study done in 1998 by Galloway, a famous study that is... One of
1: the studies everyone cites for determining optimal endurance performance temperature. And so what their study did was they had a time to exhaustion test and they put the athletes in, I think it was like four degrees, 10 degrees, 20 something degrees, and then like 35 or 32 or something like that. And this is one of the famous studies where they showed this kind of inverse U for performance where cold temperatures and hot temperatures would decrease performance as you would think as it would totally make sense it's at some point if it's too hot or too cold you're going to decrease performance so and then they show this relationship where around 13 degrees uh the performance was the highest and the best and so they also so that's my First study was heavily kind of based on that of four different temperatures, but instead of having a time to exhaustion test or a time trial, uh, we just had uh, an interval session.
0: All right, so let's go through the first study's methods section before we get to the results. The participants were 11 male cyclists. This is a small sample size and something we'll touch on later on in the episode. And the ages, 34.1 plus or minus 9.8 years. Participants were classified as well-trained. And here's something I didn't know. This classification comes from a paper by DePaul et al. I always come across names of populations like elite or healthy, etc. But most of the time, these populations are never clearly quantified. So I was happy to see that this Deepaw et al. paper from 2013 that Jason used, it recommends guidelines to classify subject groups in sports science research and divides populations into five performance level groups based on biometrical, physiological, and training data. These groups represent untrained, recreationally trained, trained, well-trained, and professional subject groups. In Jason's first study, the participants were classified as well-trained, their VO2max, fit in the performance level four range of 65 to 71 being 69.62 plus or minus 6.74 milliliters per kilogram per minute. Participants reported to have been training for competitive cycling for one to 22 years, 10.4 plus or minus 6.6. The range here is equal to or greater than three years of cycling experience. And finally, they train an average of 15 plus or minus five hours per week for four to seven days. 5.5 plus or minus one day per week for the six weeks prior to participation. Anything equal to or over 10 hours is considered well-trained. Now to the intervention. Participants completed five testing sessions that were each separated by at least 48 hours. In the initial session, participants performed a graded exercise test and the remaining four sessions involved participants performing repeated high-intensity intervals in four different temperatures, five degrees, 13 degrees, 22 degrees, and 35 degrees Celsius at 55% relative humidity on a Velotron ergo inside an environmental chamber. These sessions were performed in a randomized order and were completed within a maximum time span of 14 days. These sessions consisted of a warm up of 10 minutes at 50% of peak power output at room temperature of 22 degrees Celsius, and then a five minute transition period, and then they got into the main set of this session, which was five by four minute intervals with five minutes recovery between each interval. The recovery period consisted of one minute at rest, three minutes of self-paced pedaling, followed by one minute at 50% of peak power output. So now we can talk about the results and what they mean for your riding. And it's fair to say that the results were not what Jason was expecting.
1: Uh, What we found was that with the high intensity intervals with well-trained cyclists, That this temperature range actually expanded. So we didn't find really any differences between four degrees, 13 degrees, 22 degrees. And the athletes didn't see a decrease in performance in the 35 degrees until like their fourth and fifth intervals. So to us, that was kind of surprising. Like I was. I was thinking, well, 13 degrees, this is where this, they're just going to max out here. But actually, that's not what we saw. So so that was performance. The performance differences were not as we expected. What we did see was there's clear thermoregulatory and physiological differences between these um, sessions uh, at these different temperatures. But they didn't necessarily translate into, you know, um, overt Uh, performance differences. So that was kind of really interesting. And, you know, we don't really have like a clear, clear single reason why or we have some ideas of why that might have happened.
0: This surprising result led to a thing I was curious about. Jason still recommends 13 degrees Celsius as the optimal temperature for endurance performance, which is the recommendation that's used a lot because it comes from this famous Galloway paper and a bunch of observational studies on marathon runners. But I had a question here. Why revert back to the original paper even after the results were different?
1: It's like if, you, if you've if you got a paper that says that are are really tight and then you have one that's broader, it's more like the broader paper, you know, our paper says like, it probably doesn't matter as much, but you might as well go for the 13. So it's like... Don't don't sweat it, but if you have the opportunity, go for the 13. So compared to that Galloway study that had that really nice, clear 13 degrees that came out and just stood out as the clear winner. Um, and incidentally, that Galloway study is basically like the lab study that has kind of established quote-unquote optimal temperature for performance but there's also a number of kind of retrospective studies that have looked at marathon data and so they looked at marathon performances and then they also looked at the weather that occurred that day and then they retrospectively tried to figure out what the best weather conditions were um, for marathon running and lo and behold coincidentally uh uh, it's right around 13 degrees uh like or 10 degrees i'm sorry 10 11 degrees 13 degrees is mine it's close enough for government work right um and so yeah so you have these retrospective studies that are showing 13 degrees is is good and then you had this famous lab study that shows that 13 degrees is kind of the optimal
0: Now we get to the second study and there's actually two parts here. I'm going to go deeper on the first one and also please note this research has been reviewed by thesis examiners but it is in the submission process so it's not peer reviewed, not published, a work in progress etc. Things can be reframed coming out of these additional scientific processes so just be aware of that. Anyway this study is based around a training intervention and while Two papers have come out of this one study. The first one is of most interest to us. It aimed to investigate cardiopulmonary responses during hot and cool high-intensity interval training and observe the subsequent effects on time trial performance and physiological responses in temperate conditions. That's a bit of a mouthful, so in simpler terms, the hypothesis was high-intensity interval training performed in 13 degrees Celsius would result in an increase in power output during a simulated 20 kilometer time trial and would exceed the outcomes of high intensity interval training performed in 35 degrees Celsius. One thing I haven't mentioned is the combination of factors that makes Jason's work different from what's already been done in the space. And this is mainly because he looked at intervals. Because I
1: realized that nobody uh, is looking at intervals and in temperature, and which is really kind of like I got really lucky, I think, because intervals are huge (laughs) everyone you know like it's such a it's such a key component of endurance training and then environmental temperature and heat acclimation and all that kind of stuff is is huge right now and that's this exploding but like no one i guess i just have been really lucky that there's no one's really like done a lot of research about combining the two i mean there is definitely studies out there that looked at different temperatures in in interval training but that wasn't like the focus of it. It was just kind of a peripheral thing. So the difference between some of the previous research and and, and what I did was that my the intervals session was uh, uniform throughout, and it was also specifically designed to have this really high component called time at or near VO2 max, which was meant to like maximize the amount of stress. Um and stimulation uh, during the interval sessions, which there's a whole big long talk about uh, the measure of time at or near VO2 max and how that relates to performance outcomes.
0: This time at or near VO2 max was an outcome measurement between the two temperatures and was their marker for performance in an attempt to link any performance outcomes in the temperate time trial because it has been suggested that aerobic adaptions during high-intensity interval training are stimulated most effectively when time spent at or near VO2 max is maximized. We'll talk a bit more about this in the results. But before we go any further, this is where the story takes an uncommon turn. Like I mentioned in the intro, one of the interesting things about Jason is how he stands at the crossroads of a cyclist, coach, and scientist. It's a rare combination to find all three, and it offers the best kind of thinking around research and outcomes. A good example of this is when Jason was originally planning this second study. His plan included getting participants to complete some heat training before doing the interval sessions in the intervention. This wasn't part of the final study though because Jason found out firsthand why doing the heat training was a bad idea. So I did
1: a little bit like of an N equals one pilot study during my PhD where I heat acclimated myself where I got to look at passive sauna heat acclimation in terms of like how I actually felt on the bike and how it looked in a sports science lens, like how it matched, you know, I was do, I do my performance modeling on, um, training peaks, how, how I felt what PMC was telling me versus like what my body was telling me and that type of stuff. And Obviously, I'm an anecdotal n of one. I could have had a sickness going on or or something like that um, that would have thrown my stuff off from what maybe other papers and that would say. But I definitely felt like it was a lot of extra stress. I piloted that out because when you do heat uh, heat acclimatize or heat acclimate, um, you see an increase in plasma volume that you won't get from exercise alone. So you get an increase in plasma volume when you do exercise, but you, when you heat acclimate, you get a bigger increase in and ha- in plasma volume. And this increase in plasma volume is one of the arguments that, that uh, Lorenzo et al made for this increase in performance that they saw. This is debatable. Um, so my thought was, I was actually trying to develop a kind of a live high, train low scheme, but with temperature. So my thought was, is like, if I do something to expose these riders to heat and get them to increase this blood plasma volume, uh, then when I do an interval training session with them in the cool, this extra blood plasma and blood volume would be forced through the periphery. It would have more shear stress and have more and, and and have more peripheral stress, hypothetically. Um, that was the idea it made. And it was one of these things where like on paper, it made great sense. It made really perfect sense to kind of, uh, periodize your, your temperatures to get this benefit. Right. So it was the same as kind of, it was like a different way to look at it, like periodizing, uh, temperature stress. But again, at at the end of the day, as soon as I did that intervention on myself, as soon as I piloted it on myself, I'm like. The coaching hat came on and the and the athlete hat came on and i was like this is ridiculous i would not i would never prescribe this to my athlete and that was where i just like changed the <laughs> i changed it um, i was like we're done with the heat acclimation point and we are only going to do work on the the um, intervals because originally the study was going to be even more massive and have the heat acclimation everyone's going to get heat acclimated before they came into the study And then they were going to do the intervals. And I can't imagine what the attrition rate would have been on that study. It would have been ridiculous.
0: Let's get down to the training intervention that participants completed. Participant-wise, it was a larger sample size that included 21 male and female trained cyclists and triathletes. Notice I said trained, so a slightly lower level of athlete 21 participants completed the protocol. These 20 participants were split into two groups, high-intensity training 13 or high-intensity training 35. The two groups of participants did a four-week high-intensity training intervention, which is eight sessions in total, at either 13 degrees Celsius or 35 degrees Celsius. Performance and physiological data were collected during the first and last interval sessions. On three separate days prior to the intervention, participants completed a graded exercise test a familiarization TT and a baseline TT, and a final time trial was conducted seven to nine days after the last interval session. Environmental conditions for the TT sessions was set at 22 degrees Celsius with 40% relative humidity. The training intervention itself consisted of a total of eight high-intensity interval sessions, two sessions a week for four weeks, Interval sessions were separated by at least 36 hours and consisted of five times four minute intervals with five minutes recovery between each. Athletes were instructed to pace the intervals to achieve the highest achievable combined intensity for the five efforts while being blinded to their power output and speed. During the last interval, participants were verbally encouraged to produce a maximal effort to help ensure the session overall was paced at their highest achievable intensity. Now, if I put my coach hat on here, when I hear five by four minutes all out and measuring time at or near VO2 max, I know that this training intervention is useful. In fact, he mentions in his paper that this protocol was chosen as a standard aerobic interval session that could elicit a considerable time spent at 90% of VO2 max. Love it. There are a few details in the study design that were unique, and here's Jason explaining more.
1: The second study, when we set that up we did it kind of unique in the sense that like we had the training temperatures were 13 degrees and 35 degrees so we did uh eight sessions of these interval sessions uh and then we the pre and post testing was at 22 degrees so we did 22 degree or we did 20 kilometer time trials in 22 degrees so that was unique in the fact that we had changed the temperatures between the testing and what the intervention was. And the other thing that was unique is that the first and last interval sessions of the intervention, so interval session one and interval session eight, uh, were testing sessions in themselves So we had all of the things on them that they would have had in the time trial. So we had this skin temperatures or core temperature. We measured oxygen consumption, uh, uh, power output, um, heart rate, um, all of these different metrics we measured in that, uh, in those intervals. So we could see how things changed in the intervals themselves over the temperature and also to kind of measure like, how much oxygen was being consumed during during the sessions.
0: Now the results and more
1: surprises. What we found in this study was that in the 13-degree intervention, there was a much higher time at or near BO2 max than in the hot intervention. And during the hot intervention, it was much lower. Um, and that was to be expected. You would expect during heat and exercise, that the um, amount of oxygen that is being consumed is going to decrease. And there's still no uh, real clear cut reason for why that is. There's still a lot of debate about it. Like if you read the old literature, uh, then it's because the cardiac output from the heart is kind of being split more or less. And like some of it has to go to the working muscles and deliver oxygen, but a portion of it, the cardiac output, also has to now go to the skin to help cool off the body, and therefore that's where you see that cardiac drift and increase in heart rate. And that's what people w- would argue is this decrease in oxygen consumption. Then in hot conditions where you would have you know matched heart rate or something like that, um, and or self-paced stuff, I would say. And so it made sense that the hot intervals were going to have a decreased time at or near VO2 max because of this uh, mechanism that we actually know really well. And then it made sense that the cooler intervals had a higher time at at or near VO2
0: max. In other words, this part of the study demonstrated that greater time was spent at or near VO2 max during high-intensity training at 13 degrees Celsius versus 35 degrees Celsius. However, contrary to their hypothesis, the observed improvements in 20-kilometre time trial performance after the 13 degrees Celsius and 35 degrees Celsius interventions were not different. And the effect size in the high-intensity training 35 was greater than twice that of the high-intensity training 13. From this, Jason mentions in his discussion that the current study raises uncertainty in the suggestion that performance improvements from aerobic high-intensity training are most effective when time at or near VO2max is maximized, especially when considering high-intensity interval training in different environmental conditions. There's also a bunch of other discussion points, like how the findings provide additional evidence that greater performance gains observed in temperate conditions following training in the heat compared with training in cooler temperatures are not necessarily an outcome of increased thermal stress, but potentially the product of corresponding increases in cardiovascular load. But how can it help cyclists? Now that we've gone through both studies, and you're still with me, we can use them together to draw some interesting conclusions. In reality, heat and performance are not so clear-cut. Like how about that 13 degrees optimal endurance performance temperature? It might not be the best temp to ride indoors at.
1: This gets into that going back to the acute study a little bit, where someone might be saying, Hey, what happens if I'm doing these lift races and I just put myself at 13 degrees all the time? Um, and I say, Well, I don't know. You might not want to do that because we showed that there's, you know, potentially some not great things that are coming from that. And I use the analogy of if I wanted you to be to jump the highest you've ever jumped, then I would have you jump on the moon. But if you lived on the moon, you wouldn't be able to jump very well when you came back to Earth because you wouldn't, you know, because you've been living without gravity. So um, there is this idea that if you are training in cooler temperatures, you start losing the ability to deal with thermal stress in normal Uh, whatever normal conditions are. So if you're racing in your seasons, mostly around, uh, maybe 22 degrees Celsius then, but you've been training in 13 degrees the whole time, maybe there's a detrimental effect there. Um, again, like, do you want to hedge your bets? I'm not going to say for sure it's the worst thing ever. And, you know, who knows? Like maybe, and obviously I don't want people to be freaking out and going, oh, I can't go out and ride because it's 13 degrees out. Like, well, just put a jacket on. We're
0: starting to see a pattern here that this new research hasn't produced necessarily very clear instructions on how to use the information from the research. And it generally shows that recommendations are not always so straightforward. But what are the main takeaways from Jason's thesis? After the break? The main takeaways from Jason's thesis. This episode is brought to you by Open Road, the indoor riding app I've been using all winter. And if you're ready for a change of scenery on your indoor trainer, then this is the app for you. Open Road is definitely worth a try because it gives you unparalleled panoramic views indoors, the only app on the market to use professionals to film the rides like it was for the cinema. This means with Open Road, you can enjoy panoramic views. That puts you right in the centre of the scenery like nowhere else. Then there's the rides. I think each country should be paying open road because after every ride, I want to go to these places and visit them. They have a library of unique rides from all over the world that are planned and curated in great detail. Finally, they are the only app offering you to cross the Pyrenees on the world's longest indoor ride. It's a killer challenge where you can ride till you drop and... Pick it up where you left off each time. As far as price goes, it's affordable even with your other indoor app subscriptions at €3.99 Euros or $4.79 a month, billed annually. And to check out the videos and the app, head over to dot world for more information or to sign up.
1: For the coach or for the athlete, one, if you're somewhere where you have to do your intervals in the heat... Probably not going to be detrimental, even though we thought it would have been in the past. The other thing to think is now that we know that it's not detrimental, we might be able to kill, kill two birds with one stone now, uh, which is a really rare thing to do in physiology. I think it's always about trade offs, and people just look for this uh, the silver bullet for performance, but it just it doesn't exist. I mean, it's it's there's way more letdown in the world than there is. In um, satisfying magic bullets, as you probably can would agree with. Um, so in this situation, we were when we went into the interval training. Our hypothesis was that these intervals, these hot intervals, done uh, with a space in between them, you know, a few days between them, or twice a week, isn't going to be enough heat close enough together to uh, stimulate heat acclimation. Because usually heat acclimation protocols are very close. And so uh, it's like 10 to 14 days of almost back-to-back heat exposure. That's typically how people heat acclimate. And so we just didn't think it was going to happen. And then like I was saying, like heat acclimation is kind of probably better if you do it during exercise because you have to exercise in the heat. And if you're going to do heat acclimation, you want to heat acclimate, heat acclimate in the same kind of condition that you're going to be in. So if you're, if you're going to be in a humid condition, you probably want to have a high humidity. Uh, if you're exercising on a bike, it's probably going to be good to be exercising on a bike, uh, etc. So, under that thought, so you're going to like even though like if you have to do a sauna, then yeah, you can work in a sauna. That's fine. If you do heat acclimation with exercise, okay. Well, what exercise what exercise intensity are you going to do during? the heat acclimation, right? So now you've added in exercise and you say that it's best to do exercise when you're heat acclimation. Now, now the next question is, well, what's the intensity that you want to get? And in the old style or the classic kind of heat acclimation where you would put uh, day after day after day, if you if you do like a sub max like they did with Lorenzo, you should be okay. Like, But this, these studies where they started doing High intensity interval training in a heat acclimation style um, protocol, where it's day after day after day after high intensity training, there's pretty good evidence out there that actually like hurts performance because there's just not enough recovery time to 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 come back from that amount of stress because you are adding um, heat stress with the intervals and then people just don't have enough there's you know just not enough time to recover so but if you add the heat in a way where we would typically train high intensity intervals it seems to be better because even though you are adding more stress in that interval session it seems to be that we you can recover from it um before the next one but you don't lose necessarily all of the um, benefits from the, from that thermal impulse that you would have. So one of the things I was talking about in my thes- in the conclusion of my thesis, is that you know maybe one way to in- integrate these hot intervals is is once once you establish heat acclimation, maybe through a standard protocol, which is. 10 to 14 days back to back to back it's a max once you establish heat acclimation you it's it's you will start to get a decay but you you don't need to um implement thermal impulse as often so you could potentially do get this two birds one stone if you do hot intervals because we know it's not probably going to hurt you. Um, so you'd be able to do your interval day and your hot day together and um, be able to kind of get the, both the benefits in one. And kind of, so you would be not necessarily stimulating heat adaptation, but you would be preventing its decay.
0: If it seems odd to you that Jason's not being black and white in his findings, His conclusions on his own research sum up both the newness of the research and also a comment on the scientific process. It's not always so satisfying. But I'll leave you with one final clip from Jason in our 2015 interview because while he is five years further along in his science career, there are some areas where he hasn't changed his ideas, especially around the latest and greatest scientific results, because his research is pretty early work in this area and it will be really interesting to see how future research builds off these results.
1: Realize that you know, when you're looking up, the latest and greatest is going to have the least amount of evidence to back it up and the least amount of evidence to explain how to apply it. So be aware of that. Um, so because, because of, of the latest and greatest is the latest and greatest and has the least amount of evidence to back it up, you have to kind of weigh it against what you're already doing. And kind of say, uh, which gets into a little bit about application, but um, understanding that even if there's positive results in a study, it doesn't necessarily mean you should move forward on it because you might be doing something better already.
0: Wise words. And we have a couple of things here to wrap up. Remember when I said we're going to touch on small sample sizes? Jason raises a recent scandal in the world of sports sciences around this issue he's a little bit on it.
1: So, something that kind of came out uh, since our last discussion in terms of papers, it was almost like a scandal. Basically, so there's 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 a, kind of an inherent problem with sports science research and that is that the the number of athletes that you would normally have if you look at the studies are very small, right? It's like, like 10 like 10 people, right? So, when you have small groups like that, it makes it harder to find a significant value, like finding is fine. And so if there are differences in, uh, is very, if the difference between the two things is very small, then you need a much larger sample to find those differences. So, um, and then when you're talking about sport, you know, very small differences is what can make or break your race. And just tiny like 1% difference can totally make the difference between whether you're on the pod- on the podium or not. And so in sports science research where you are inherently have these very small populations, it's really hard to find those really small differences if you're using normal stats. So what happens uh, was there was this scientist um, Will Hopkins, and he came, he, he knew stats, and he decided to come up with this uh, method of stats called uh, magnitude based inferences.
0: I'm going to add this part of the conversation into Semi Pro Plus. I'm sure only the super keen science people want to hear more about this and what to watch out for when coming across this measure in a paper. The other issue here with small sample sizes in sports science, and this is kind of on us, or at least on cyclists in a certain age category. I'll wrap up here with some thank yous and a plea from Jason to volunteer when you can.
1: If I was going to put out any like shout-out, I'm really appreciative of all the people that came up for my study. Um... When you see those studies going around from the PhD students like me or, or the universities, you know do do the best you can to get there because we need we, we need the trained individuals to so that we can get the best data possible. And it's one of those things where it's the it's the tragedy of the commons. Like the people that we want to know this knowledge the most for are the twenty something year olds and early thirty something year olds because that's what it translates over to for the pro peloton but those are the those are the people i see the least in the lab the people i see in the lab the people who are begging me to come in are the masters writers. and i love it you know i love it that they're that, they're, they're, they're that eager but if my mean age for my study is 55 how, you know, it does, it's not as likely to translate to the young guys who, who are the guys who the sports scientists want, you know, the data to work with those guys. It benefits them the most. So, uh, this is really kind of a, um, a plead to the, the younger people out there that are fit. And have maybe a really serious training program. So like, please consider coming into the lab and doing these things if you can, because, um, we, we, we need your data because it's you that will your, your cohort, your subset of the population that it will help the most. Um, the same with coaches. Um, I know with your coach with your athlete like you know you're setting this these things up you have your plan and you you in their life and whatever is probably interrupting your plan uh for the for the athlete as, mo- as much as possible as it is but you know please consider like the papers and things that you are getting athletes had to interrupt their training time um, to come into the lab to, to do the things in order to find these higher levels of truth.
0: If you want to dig in more or get in contact with Jason, I encourage you to seek him out. You can find him at boyntoncoaching.com. That's B-O-Y-N-T-O-N coaching.com. And with that, Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out our membership program, Pro Plus, where you can stay up to date on the latest cycling science research with our monthly Cycling Science Digest and ad-free and exclusive podcasts, head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash plus. That's semiprocycling.com forward slash P-L-U-S. Until next time, ride well.